Welcome to the ESG Matters podcast. My name is Amat Gomis and I am your host. Today we have Ms. Charlene Jackson, the Global Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer at Iron Mountain. Iron Mountain is the global leader in innovative storage and information management services. Welcome to the podcast, Ms. Jackson. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here. Um, just to start off, when in your professional career did you see the need for diversity, equity, and inclusion? Or rather, was there an experience that led you to think about this in retrospect that if maybe if there was a DEI program in place, would not have occurred? You know, I think I would say it's twofold, maybe a combination of both. You know, I joined an investment bank and initially didn't realize that there was a need for DEI programs or policies. And quite honestly, it wasn't even talked about very much, if at all. So as a first year at an investment bank, you're a generalist, you're in a pool of associates working on a variety of assignments, you have a staffer, and then just whatever comes up is what you work on. Well, I had graduated from law school and worked on several projects with our leveraged lease group and was requested often. And then they wanted me to join their group prior to completing the first year. But the advice you get is not to do that because you really need to work and get exposure to other groups. And I hadn't had any exposure to many other groups. So I didn't join the group. And I ultimately joined a group where I really, really liked the people. And it was great at first because you really worked with senior people and, and worked on and executed deals. However, the firm had a, this firm had a policy that they only had a select number of clients in the group that I was in that they would cover. So needless to say, it doesn't leave a lot for the new person since all the clients were distributed to the senior folks in the group. And so had DEI been around then, there would have probably been ERGs, you know, employee resource groups and other people that who might have taken an interest and spoke with you that warned you that a new person probably should not join that group, not at least not for the long term, even though very, you know, the people were very nice, but I saw that not other people had joined the group. So that, you know, just the informal information you would have gotten wasn't there. So while it wasn't that incident directly that caused me to get involved with DEI, it certainly had an input, an impact because a couple of years later I actually went to our CEO and really talked about the fact of our processes and the fact that we did not have, rarely did we have many women and certainly didn't have any people of color. And I was actually the only African-American person in the investment banking area at that time. So it certainly made me think about we needed to do something. Thank you for sharing that. It's such an important part, I think, of DE&I programs where it's not necessarily just having a formalized program in place, but also having the opportunity to network and talk to people and get that, understand both the informal hierarchy and sort of the corporate culture that you're stepping into and understanding how best to navigate it. So that's really important part of DEI. I think oftentimes it gets overlooked. Yeah, I think absolutely you're right. That That's absolutely right. And we just don't think about it a lot until you need it. Yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> and then recently, Harvard Business Review had an article stating entitled Stop Making the Business Case for Diversity, where they argue that by making a case for diversity, even if the case is grounded in a moral argument, you inherently imply that valuing diversity is up for discussion. You don't have to explain why you value innovation, resilience, or integrity, or any other sort of established business ideas or corporate concepts. So why treat diversity any differently? That's kind of what that article argues. What are your thoughts on this? Ideally, while one shouldn't have to make the case, I think the reality is, is that trying to change behavior is tough. 
And it's important to get people to understand your perspective. And that was going to require some explaining, regardless of whether you just started a diversity initiative or whether it's been around for a while, because there's always changing of the guards, they're changing of people. So I guess I look at it, you can have an attitude that I shouldn't have to make the case and perhaps not be successful, or I can decide that it means enough to me to try and help folks understand why this makes sense. I typically say I manage by fact and use data to help people understand, which goes a lot further than antidote. So if I can show you something, the data, which a lot of people understand better than an an antidote, then I think you get a little further. But I think a case in point is climate change. I mean, how much money and time is being spent to convince people one way or the other that it is real or not real? So I think that there's times in every in the evolution of every idea or concept where you're going to have to do some discussing and, and convincing, especially when you're trying to change behavior. I agree. I think one thing that that article in particular, and sometimes when you hear these arguments sort of forget, is that there has to be a certain level of pragmatism one has to have, especially if you are someone who would benefit from having a DEI program, is that... Yes, if everything was kept the same, sure, you shouldn't have to argue for this. But at the end of the day, like you said, you do have to provide data. You do have to provide a rationale because you don't know other where other people are coming from. Sometimes they have not necessarily a bias, but they just have blinders on because of their own, how they grew up professionally, sort of how they interact with people, that they don't even think this is an issue not because they have any ill intent, but they need to be shown that this is this is something that you may not understand based on where you are, maybe your own anecdotal information that you're intaking. But having that, like you said, those quantitative facts and figures that people can see and saying this is an issue that will impact our business, both when we think about how are we going to be innovative, how are we going to lead and lead with the times and changing because we're not getting the best of the best if we're not expanding our horizons, so to speak. And then also when we think about getting employees and making sure employees are retained, we get that the value of retention and the value of their of hard work. If we don't provide a culture and foster a culture where everyone feels as if they are truly a part of the team, really negates that. So I think that that's one thing sometimes when we see these articles that yes, if it was a perfect world, we would not necessarily need it, but we don't live there and we have to be pragmatic if we want to see change, positive change in corporate America and throughout everywhere where there's a DNI program where there's a need or value of one. You're right. In, in your position, you're oftentimes having conversations and educating employees and management about diversity and creating an inclusive environment, which often means having difficult and discomforting conversations. Why does it seem as if it's always on the diverse population to lead and manage these conversations. Wow, that's a good one. But you know what? You're absolutely right. And I've thought about it some, and I think that it's because diverse people have a lived experience and authenticity in talking about the issues. I also think if you've gone through something, you're more empathetic towards others. So you know what it's like to feel excluded or disrespected. Often people who are not diverse or have not been close with diverse individuals, they don't even know what they don't know. And they find it hard to even conceive, I think, that things happen as 
diverse people might suggest. And I think a perfect example is if you look at the George Floyd murder, but for the courage of that young woman who continued to record in defiance of the police, very few non-diverse people would have believed what they ultimately saw on camera. Now for diverse individuals, we've seen this for years, but have either not been believed. And I think that's just because a non-diverse person does not perhaps have the same experience with a policeman that a diverse person has or somebody in their family has or somebody on their street has. And I just felt this when I was at Solomon and I felt more that I needed to get this right. And I had a voice and I had an opportunity that others who look like me may not have. So I think in those cases, when you are a diverse person, it's not just about you. It's about the other people that you're there to represent Represent, whether or not you have been officially told you represented, I think we just always feel that we do and we don't want to let, let them down. You know, when we recruited, started recruiting at an HBCU, I would have to convince colleagues that these students were as talented as the person or students from Wharton or Harvard. And while that, you know, a student from Morehouse, let's say, he may have had a slightly lower grade point average, but I also tried to educate them and help them understand that he also had greater obligation. This student was generally working to help pay for his education and perhaps even assist his family. So I think those are the things that we really have to take in, into consideration. And it was interesting how over time, these students did very well when given the opportunity, they truly excelled. They were resilient. They were hardworking, used to you know having to do whatever it took to get the job done. And they were extremely bright. And so it was interesting that we always say you're in a class and we rank everybody in the class. And many times these students came out as number one. So I think we just feel that it was, you know, I always felt it was my opportunity to give them the best shot that, that we could and to also encourage them and help our my colleagues who didn't have that experience understand, again, why we spent the time going to these schools and trying to help students that um, that looked like me. That's so important. Oftentimes, I think we, when you touched about the fact that oftentimes when there isn't a DEI program in place, you can find yourself being the one, if not the only or the first. And while it's sometimes a position that can have awkward moments, it is an opportunity to advocate for inclusion and for opportunities for others who will be coming behind you and reap those rewards. And sometimes those discomforting conversations are ones that unfortunately need to happen because without those conversations, nothing will really change and nothing will improve. And I'm sure in your career, you've had multiple conversations where sometimes you look back and you're like, I can't believe they said that, or I can't believe I've had to explain something so basic to someone so senior. And I think that's a shared experience. A lot of people who have been the first and or the only can sort of that resonates with them. Well, interestingly, at that investment bank, I actually ended up starting our diversity initiative. So um, certainly had a lot of those conversations and it was a lot of uphill battles. But, you know, I think we made some progress. So, And it's funny you should mention that because I'm, I was thinking you've done this in a plethora of different places where you've managed, you created DNI programs and maybe taking a step back or a few steps back. If you could design the best DNI program for corporate America writ large, what would that look like? Well, I always say that for me, that would be about culture transformation. Because I think one of the things we did when my first opportunity to start a DEI program, we hired a culture anthropologist. 
And that really looked at everything that had happened at that company. It was about a hundred, a little less than a hundred years old, but that had happened with that organization and how, you know, the it created the culture it had, how, you know, the, the formal and informal roads take success, et cetera. And that gave us an opportunity to be able to use some of that information in the modern day time, which was, you know, probably like almost 80 years after they had been, you know, had started or something. But what I say is that we need to transform a culture. And a lot of times we want to have events. And I think events are fine. I think they bring awareness, but they don't really bring change. And when you think about it, it's been over. I mean, I did, I first started doing this almost 25 years ago and we're still having some of the same issues. You know what? We're underrepresented in leadership positions at organizations. What hasn't changed? And what hasn't changed is that the cultures don't change. And so we, we, people, we have a lot of events. We have programs that develop people. But at the end of the day, if you haven't created a culture, which is what we're trying to do at our mountain, is that where the words we say are matched by a universal sense of belonging, where every person feels that their contributions are valued and that their voice is heard and that all of our employees have an opportunity to achieve their goals and meet the needs of our customers. If people don't feel like that, we can bring as many people in as we want, but it becomes a revolving door because they don't stay. You don't stay somewhere where you don't feel very comfortable. You may stay for a while. So I think that's what I'm really trying to focus on at Iron Mountain is let's change the culture. We've had people leave, whether it's women, senior women, whether it's people of color, and everybody says the same thing. Well, you know, it's the culture or either I don't really feel like I really have an opportunity to advance. And when you have large organizations, you really have to start at the top. And, and I think the other piece of it is really holding people accountable, holding our executives accountable and tying that accountability to compensation because you can have goals, but if there's no consequence, then we're probably not going to have a lot of things happen differently. I really like that idea of tying it to compensation because that really is amazing how much of a motivator that is when it comes to changing culture, changing course, changing anything within a corporation. So that is, I think that would be a great thing if generally if DNI programs were tied, successful programs were tied to senior level executive bonuses and compensation packages. Maybe even taking an, another sort of look at DEI from a global perspective. Many companies have a global workforce, and the issues that a company may face from a DEI perspective in the US may be very different than what they face in India, may be very different than what they face in South Africa. How can a company that has this sort of global workforce and global cultures, multiple cultures within an organization, create a DEI program given that context? That's an interesting question. And, and it's one that's it's difficult, but it's doable. We actually have like 66 countries where we have operations in. And so we have a CEO who is very adamant, not just about what we do in the U.S., but also understanding what's happening in our countries, particularly to you know uh, marginalized groups. And so what I did, um, and I've only been at Iron Mountain a little over a year, but I said, you know what, I set out to set a strategy that was a global strategy, but that was locally relevant. So I work with our my counterparts over in APAC or at least around the globe. 
And it's really to say, you know what, here is our strategy and there's some basic tenets. And like I said, some of those tenets are just that we are going to transform this culture by making sure that everybody has a voice and the things that I said before. But you also need to take that and work with it the way it makes sense in your local community. I am not here to export what we have in the United States to any other country. And so, for instance, in in a couple of weeks, I'm actually doing a global listening tour. I did a global summit last year, about five months or six months after I started. And that was really to help them understand here is our global strategy. And so now, you know, almost a year later, not quite a year, but almost a year later, I am now going out and going to each of our regions. And so we work, we have employee resource groups, both in the United States or in North America, and then we have them in our different regions. And they really run them the way Like I said, keeping in mind the things that we want to do as an enterprise, but also understanding what do you need to do for your local community? So whether it's our DEI councils, our ERG groups, they are totally run by the individuals that live in those countries or in those regions. And my um, listening tour is really to go out and spend time with them, spend time with our customers and understand what is it else that we could be doing in your region that we're not doing that is going to help you make sure that you have, because as you know, diversity is very different in, in other countries. So for instance, what we do is we are really tracking our women globally. Ethnicity is primarily the U.S., but as I said, we're now looking at these other 66 countries to also see what is happening with marginalized folks in those areas, but still letting each individual group run their diversity or their DEI counts or ERGs to the extent that it makes sense for them and their clients. That's great. Having that global focus, but having localized solutions, I think is is a great sort of way to delineate and provide both folks on the ground the ability to have ownership of the solution and, and sort of defer to them as subject matter experts on the issues and cultural context of that community. So I think that's great. Well, Ms. Jackson, thank you so much for your time and thank you for being a guest on the ESG Matters podcast today. Well, thank you and thank you again for having me. 